We're going through Matthew, as you know. But before that, like, I, I was walking to, I've been in Chesterfield for four and a half months. I was walking to our staff meeting, which we have on a, uh, a Monday morning, walking across the, the road, and I saw the crooked spot, and I just thought, you know what, I'm home. I am home. I didn't come to Chesterfield to work for a church. I came to Chesterfield to be part of a family. And what we saw this morning, I think, just as we prayed for Ollie and prayed for the kids, is that is family. I don't know if you've been in a church before. I don't know if, I don't know most of you still, because uh, I'm quite elusive. And I go around the country, I go around the world preaching the gospel and, and, and doing comedy. But there's something about coming home to preach the gospel. If you, if you don't know Jesus, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, it's, it's a bit weird, I think. It was for me. I remember standing in a wedding in 2000 and something, early 2000s, looking at people raising their hands to worship and thinking, you guys are morons, what are you doing? What, why are you so excited? What you need to know is like, it is weird, thanks mate, when people raise their hands to worship, it is weird, but what we are doing, whether you find it weird or not, you know when a toddler wants their daddy and they put their hands up, they say, daddy, pick me up. That's all that's going on. We've got our hands up because we want our daddy. We want our spiritual, heavenly daddy. Like we don't, we're not here to invite you to come to church so that you can give a tithe or, or learn how to behave properly. We want you to know that you have a dad, you have a heavenly dad who loves you and wants to adopt you into his family where you can know love and joy and hope and peace. Like some of you don't have a great physical family, but I just feel to tell you this morning, we'll be your family. God's your dad and we'll be your family. I was out, um, I haven't started the talk yet, I just, this is, Everything's gone a bit haywire this morning, so it'll be all right. I've got some notes. Um, I was out in Huddersfield uh, a couple of years ago and um, was praying for these teenagers. I went up to them. They didn't, it wasn't solicited. They, I went up to them and said, can I pray for you guys? And their ringleader comes up to me and says, uh, what do you mean? Pray who are you praying to? Are you religious? What's going on? And I heard the Lord say, and it's annoying when Christians say, I heard God say, because what do I mean by that? I, all I mean when I say I heard God say, is that I had a thought in my head that corresponded to a feeling in my heart that I should say something. There wasn't this massive voice in the clouds. It's the same voice that says, you've got to pick up your daughter from nursery, you're four hours late. It's, it's, the same, it's the same voice. And I heard God say, this lad has never met his dad, ask him about it. That's all I heard. The thought just dropped in my, into my head and in my heart, this guy's never met his dad, ask him about it. So I said, his name was Nathan. I said, Nathan, tell me about your dad. He said, I've never met my dad. I said, mate, this will sound weird, but I know that. God just told me that. And I just want you to know a couple of things that I can tell by the fact your head dropped that you miss. You know you're wired to have a dad. You want a dad. You want a father. You're wired for that. You feel the presence of a dad by his absence. I just want you to know that there is a dad out there who loves you and it's, it's God. God the Father. And the Bible tells me a couple of things. It says that God knew you before he made you in your mother's womb and he offers to never leave you and never forsake you. And I want you to know about that. And there wasn't any great miracle. He didn't burst into tears or drop to the floor. But I saw something in his eyes that looked a lot like hope. Something changed, something raised in his eyes that looked a lot like hope. Because all I had told him, all that I had done was to tell this guy who thought he was an orphan that he wasn't born to be an orphan and God wasn't going to leave him that way. And this is why we call it the gospel, because it's good news. Are you happy so far? Now we can start the talk. Okay, so we go through Matthew. Matthew 21, that's, not, that's the last talk, which went down very well, if I say so myself. Here we are, Matthew 21, 23 to 27. Let me read it first, and then we shall say a series of words in sequential order, uh, which hopefully makes some sort of logical sense. So, it's, uh, 
the authority of Jesus questioned. Jesus entered the temple courts. So if you've got it, you can turn to it. Jesus, uh, it's Matthew 21, uh, 23 to 27. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did that come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and they said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now, as Carl was saying last week, I wasn't here last week, but I watched it, it was great. Um, the book of Matthew of the Gospels, it's the most Jewish of all the Gospels, and the primary aim of Matthew was to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah that they had expected. But for our uh, 21st century uh, Western modern mindset and sensibilities, it seems a little bit weird, because I preached on uh, Jesus turning over tables a, a, a few weeks ago, um, and that makes Jesus look very angry and not very tolerant. Carl uh, preached uh, last week about Jesus shouting at foliage. Uh, and if you think about it, like, it's so weird. But I think the cursing of the fig tree is one of the greatest signs, although it's the weirdest bit in the New Testament, it's one of the greatest signs of the authenticity of the New Testament. Because if you were a group of people, if you were a group of guys who, wanted to, who were going to make up a religion and try to convince the world that Jesus was God, you wouldn't include the bit where your leader told off a tree. You just wouldn't do that, would you? There are other things that you'd put in that place. So Jesus shouts at foliage. And then in this one, in this one today, Jesus comes across, as if you don't mind me saying, slightly passive-aggressive. Like, if you tell me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing that. And he's not being passive-aggressive. He is trapping them. He's trapping them in their pride. Because these guys are the chief priests. Like, it's not that they don't know. They were the ones who were paid to know. They were the ones who were supposed to know things. And Jesus is trapping them uh, in their pride. So we're going to talk about that today. Uh, when I was at school, I had a teacher called Mrs. Jones. Now, I don't have a story about her. But I've mentioned her in all my other Redeemer King talks, and I didn't want her to feel left out this morning, so I thought I'd just mention her. <laughs> this is like a, a theme going through all my talks. When I was in secondary school, I had a mate called um, Gaz. Gaz was weird. I met him on the first day of high school. Uh, and the first day of secondary school is a very tense time for uh, young people. We were all there in a classroom full of uh, boys. Everybody quite scared, some of the more feeble children openly weeping. And Gaz appears, it's into this arena that Gaz appears, marches to the front of the classroom, puts his bag down and announces, excuse me boys, just to let you know, curly whirlies aren't actually that curly, wake up! The first thing he ever said. And I knew at that point we were going to be friends. He was bonkers. But he also introduced me to the phrase, militant agnostic. When we got to sixth form, he called himself a militant agnostic. Now, agnosticism says, I don't know if there's a God. Militant agnosticism says, not only do I not know if there's a God, but we can't know that there's a God. And militant agnosticism is really interesting because it's totally self-refuting. If you're going to say, we can't know if there's a God, well, that's still a claim to knowledge. You're saying that I know 
that we can't know. Well, sorry, how do you know that, mate? How do you know? So Gaz um, was a, uh, a militant agnostic, and in fairness to him, uh, not just with God, but with things that you have no reason to be agnostic about. Uh, during our entire, this is true, during our, our entire two-year stint of GCSE, Gaz claimed not to believe in Japanese people. When I say he didn't believe in them, I don't mean he'd approach them individually and say, you'll never amount to anything. He's physically disbelieved in the existence of Japanese people. And when challenged on it, and I think he must have been joking, but he was always very straight-faced, so you never knew really what was going on. When challenged about it, he said, well, think about it. It's probably just Chinese people mucking about, isn't it? Well, I don't think it is. When we showed him on one occasion a map with the island nation of Japan featured prominently on it, Gaz just said, well... Seems a little bit too convenient, don't you think? No, I don't think that, guys. <laughs> but anyway, he was, so he was agnostic on lots of weird things. But certainly on God. And I remember in sixth form, 1999, upper six, uh, Gaz said, I'll be all right. Because if I die and it turns out that there's a God and I come before him, I'll just say, hey, I never said you didn't exist. And even though I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't become a Christian for another three years. That struck me as quite weird at the time, because I thought, actually, the idea that moments after your body has perished, you'll somehow be in a position to haggle with the greatest power in the universe. And that seems quite strange. Um, but also, now that I am a Christian, I've been a Christian for sort of 15 years, I realised that what was going on there was an assumption, because every belief has an origin story. And there was an assumption there. And Gaz's assumption was that life is somehow a test set by God where the big question is, do I exist? Like Gas said, I never said, I never see, he said, he would say, I never said you didn't exist. I, di I didn't say you weren't real. As though life is one big exam set by God and the only question we need to answer is, is God real? Does God exist? This is the assumption that um, Gas was working on. And you know what? It's, uh, I understand where it comes from. Because I think the idea is that as long as I don't give the wrong answer, I can't fail. I never said you didn't exist. As long as I don't give the wrong answer, I can't fail. And this is where we have confused religion and spirituality with our Western post-colonial, post-empire mindset. Most of us have been brought up to, not to be believe necessarily, but we have been conditioned to feel like practical success is equated to moral success. Most of us have been in an education system where the people who were worth the most were the people who were best. The cleverest children were made to feel like they were worth the most. When I went to um, Newcastle under Lyme School, which was the top school in Staffordshire, and a lot of our, um, our schools send a lot of people to Oxbridge every year. And my favourite teacher ever was a, uh, a lady called Mrs Woodcock, and I loved her. She was my French teacher. I did French at university. Uh, and she said, you should apply to um, Oxford or Cambridge. You probably won't stay in, because you don't like working very hard and you're really lazy, but you'll probably blag your way in. So I said, okay. So I went to the open day, I went to the Oxford open day, and um, the professor there, Magdalen College, the professor said, well, 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 one finds that one spends most of one's time on the literature rather than the language element. And I thought, what do you mean, one? Are you the queen? What, who? <laughs> one? And that, I thought, I'm not going there. That seems really weird. So I, um, I went to Warwick instead, which had a nice campus, and the professors didn't pretend that they were living in the past, which I thought was really good. But a lot of people did... Um, apply to Oxbridge and they did get into Oxbridge and so on the day when it was announced that all these 
sixth formers had gone into Oxbridge. Another teacher uh, came into the sixth form common room and went up to all of them and congratulated them and shook hands with them and took a couple of them out for dinner, I think. That may not be true, but that's how I remember it. And they were made to feel, and we were made to feel, like they were better. Their practical success was greater than ours, and so we couldn't help but feel that their worth was greater. And this, I think, is what's going on. We confuse spiritual truths with practical success. We've been conditioned to believe that if you get the right answers, you will somehow get the reward. What's really interesting, first of all, the Christian view, by the way, is that life is not an exam to be passed. Life is not an exam that God has set to be passed. The Christian view is that life is a truth to be experienced and a person to be known. It's not an exam to be passed. Interestingly, there isn't a single religion, though, where just believing in God or believing that there's a God actually makes any difference. None of the major world religions say that the whole point is just to work out whether you think God exists. And if you get the right answer, you'll get what you want. Isn't that really interesting? There isn't any religion where just getting the right answer about God's existence gets you to where you want to go. In the book of James, James knew how to dish out zingers. In the book of James, James says, you say you believe in God. Oh, well, that's great. I'm paraphrasing here, but that's great. He says, do you know who else believes in God? All the demons. Imagine that. It's true. All the demons believe in God. The Christian view is that all the demons believe in God. When it comes to belief about God, the demons are orthodox. They have the right belief. All the demons, don't, they don't just believe in God. They know that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. The demons know whether Calvinism or Arminianism is true. The demons know whether uh, creationism is true or whether God used evolution to get us where we are. The demons know all of that. And the Bible says that they tremble. Because it's not about having the right belief. It's not about having the right set of facts. It's about being in the right relationship. And I haven't checked with most of them recently, but I don't think most of the demons are in relationship with the Lord. But then my theology might be off. The Christian view is that Jesus Christ is not just the giver, but the source of love, light and life. He is these, he doesn't just have these things, he is these things. He is love, light and life. If you turn your back on love, you get disconnection. You turn your back on light, you get darkness. You turn your back on life, you get death. The problem for the demons is that they've gone so far away from the source of love, light and life that now we have to call them demons because that's how they act and that's who they are. They have become their choices. So it's not about having the right belief because the belief won't change anything. You can believe what you like, it won't change your life. The great news about Christianity is it's about being in the right relationship, a relationship that offers you love, joy, hope, peace, purpose, freedom, fullness of life. You see, most people say, and I've said this before, and I think it's true, I don't think most people in our society are atheists. Most people would say, if you push them hard enough, I, yeah, I believe that there's a God and I try to live a good life. And I think most people do try to live a good life. But do you see how much like a school report card that sounds? At our school, we had, you'd have A1, B2, C3. And at our school, the A would be for the attainment and the 1 would be for the effort. Do you see what people are saying? Like, I believe that there's a God and I try to live a good life. So 
I'm trying to live a good life. That's the one for effort. And I believe that there's a God. I've got the right answer. That's A. And most people wouldn't say they're A1 students. People would say, I'm probably a B2 student. But people, we are so wired, we are so conditioned to believe that education and practical success and intellectual success is somehow equated to moral success and spiritual reality. And it's just not. Because again, there isn't a single religion. Like you could go up to any religion and say, I believe that there's a God and I tried to live a good life. None of the major world religions will say that that's going to get you where you want to go. None of them. There isn't a religion where those two things, believing that there's a God and trying to live a good life, actually gets you where you want to go. Every other religion will say, not good enough. Jesus says, not necessary. That's the big difference. You go up to any religious leader and say, I believe in God, I'm trying to live a good life. They'll say, sorry, not good enough. Work harder. Jesus says, not necessary. Not necessary. Buddha's final words, apparently, were strive without ceasing. Jesus' final words were, it is finished. You go to any religion and they'll say, work harder. Work to earn your own salvation. Tie yourself out because you need to. It's not good enough to try. You actually have to do work towards your own salvation. Jesus comes along and says, hey, mate, you look, you look tired there. Why don't you come to me and I'll give you rest? You look thirsty, come to me, I'll give you a drink, you'll never be thirsty again. Every other religion says do. Jesus says, consider it done. Consider it done. What is done? The need to strive. Because it's not about attainment. It's not about how clever you are or what you know. It's just about knowing who you are and how loved you are by a God who says that you're worth dying for. This is why we call it the gospel, my friends, because it's good news. This is why it's a beautiful name. And it's not that it's not a choice. It is still a choice. Let, I mean, look at the passage. In the passage, again, the priests, they say we don't know. But it's not that they don't know. They do know that there's power. They don't say, are you really doing these things? They say, by what authority are you doing these things? They know that there's power. They want to know where the power comes from. But they're not really saying, we don't know. What's going on is they don't want to get it wrong. They don't want to fail the test as they see it. What they're really saying, even though their words say, I don't know, what they're really saying is, we will not choose. We will not choose. They are actually opting out of making a choice. But the problem is that not choosing is a choice. Always. Not choosing is a choice. I don't know is a great place to start. It's okay not to know things, of course it is. I don't know is a great place to start, but a terrible place to finish. Wherever, wherever you look, if you turn up on your first driving lesson, you say, I don't know how to drive a car. Well, that's great. That's why you come for your first driving lesson. If you get to the test centre for your fifth test and say, I don't know how to drive, well, that's more of a problem. At some point, you need to commit to the process of learning how to drive a car. I don't know is a great place to start, but a terrible place to finish. There are things we can do when we don't know. We can look into things that we don't know. See, often I don't know means I won't choose. 
And there can't be many situations. There can't be many situations where saying I don't know is very helpful for very long. I moved to Chesterfield on the 4th of October uh, 2018. There's a blue plaque up as you come into Chesterfield saying that that happened. <laughs> and on my first day, Carl Beach here took me to Einstein's. And because I did modern languages at university, I know that Einstein's not just a person, but it's actually a pun. It's a play on words because Einstein means a glass of beer. It's a fantastic pun. Carl took me to Einstein's. He said, um, he gave me a menu, he said, what do you want? And I said, well, I, I don't know, I've never, I've never been here before, I don't know what's on the menu. He said, fine, he gave me the menu. And I opened it, I mean, he knew he was having a pork schnitzel, of course he was, he knew what he was having. If you ever go to Einstein's, it's true, isn't it? Nothing but a pork schnitzel. Carl very much lets his yes be yes when he goes to Einstein's. I opened up the menu and I looked at the options and I made a choice. And that was fine, I didn't know when I came in, so I looked at the menus and I made a choice. It would have been a problem if Carl had given me the menu after I'd said I don't know, and I just sat there on a Game Boy or whatever they play on these days. I don't, a Tamagotchi, I don't know, you, you're more down with the kids than I am. I'm wearing a 1970s military jacket, look at me. If after half an hour Carl had said, kindly, what do you want to order? And I said, oh, I don't know, Carl, I didn't, did I stutter? I told you, I don't know, I don't know what they have. That, that's more of a problem. And it doesn't mean that I get punished. It doesn't mean that I'm somehow morally inferior. But I don't get to eat. Until I make a choice about what I want, they're not going to bring me any food. And if I made that decision with every single meal that I ever had, eventually my body would shrivel and I would perish. It would take a while for it to shrivel, I realise that. <laughs> but eventually I would perish. Choices have consequences, and not choosing is a choice. It's okay to say that we don't know all the facts, but that doesn't mean that we can't know truth. It doesn't mean that we can't know truth. Just because we don't know all the facts, it doesn't mean that we can't know anything, or that we can't know truth. You see, my daughters will never know all the facts about me, thank goodness. My daughters will never know everything there is to know about me. But it doesn't mean that they don't know me. And it doesn't mean that they don't know that I love them unconditionally. Because that's my role. I'm daddy. That's what daddy does. That's the role of a father. They can know me. And they can know that I love them unconditionally. Where Christianity is unique... Every, every other religion will tell you that you can, you can know stuff about God. You can know some stuff about God, but you can't know him. You can't know God. Christianity is unique because it says, you can actually know the truth about God because God is a person. And God is personal and knowable. I agree that we can only know what is knowable. I agree that we can only know what is knowable. But we can know God because he's personal and knowable. Immanuel Kant, who was a really famous philosopher, said, we can never reach outside of our own experience and grab ultimate reality. We can never reach outside of our own experience and grab ultimate reality. And I agree. But what if ultimate reality reached in and grabbed us? Like most of us would, well not most of us, but some of us would think all we can do is like use words to describe what we think is out there and we can never know. But what if words became flesh and came to live amongst us? Wouldn't that change things? If words became flesh and came to live in amongst us, all of a sudden that stops being about knowing the right facts and knowing the right person. It stops being about having the right belief and becomes about being in the right relationship. 
Do you see how that changes things? It's no longer about facts. It's about relationship. When someone says to me or to us, because people often say, what makes you think you're right? People say to Christians, what makes you think that you're right? We don't think that we're right. We think that he is true. And there's a difference. I take no credit. Before I became a Christian, Jesus was still Lord of the universe. If I ever fall away, Jesus will still be Lord of the universe. It's not about whether I am right. I take no credit. He is true. He is the Lord. In him, the fullness of the deity dwells. We don't claim to know all the facts. We don't claim to have all the answers. But we do claim to know him. We claim to know him because he has made himself knowable. Ultimate reality has reached in, said that we're worth dying for. And we can know how loved we are. We can know that when a little baby gets taken to hospital, we can pray and stuff happens. It's not just words. It's an outpouring of love, which is based in the source of love and light and life, whose name is Jesus Christ. And it's not that we think we know him and nobody else can. We want everyone to know him. It's not a test. When I applied for university, the entry requirements for Oxford University were AAB. The entry requirements for Cambridge University were AAB. The entry requirement for the kingdom of heaven is yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes to your offer of love and freedom. You say that you know me fully and you love me fully and I say yes to that. That's it. It's a choice, but it's not a test. Because you know, God isn't going to force his love on you. Love cannot be given under duress. We have another four-letter word for forced love. We don't call it love. Like, God loves you and so will give you a choice because he will not force you into his presence. But the great news of Christianity is that we're not flailing in the dark. Muhammad, who founded Islam, said, I do not know what will happen to me. This is in the Quran. I do not know what will happen to me. He wasn't sure that he'd worked hard enough to get to heaven. And even if he'd got there, the Islamic view of heaven is wine and women. That's great if you're a 17th century buccaneer. What if you're a single mum from Chesterfield? What if you struggle with alcohol addiction? Well done. Have a wine. Muhammad said, I don't know what will happen to me. Gandhi, one of the greatest men who ever lived, said... It's an unbroken torture to me that I don't know my creator. These guys didn't claim to know God and because of that they didn't have security and because of that they didn't have freedom. And then Jesus comes along in John chapter 8 and says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Thanks Colin for the prompt. <laughs> Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. If you know me, you do know the Father. Romans 5 says, this is how God demonstrates his love for us. As in, this is how we know that we're loved. Christ died for us. 
Who else do you know has laid down their life for you so that you could know it? If Jesus didn't want us to know certain things, if Jesus didn't want us to know that we were fully known and fully loved, he probably wouldn't have bothered going to the cross. The cross is one great big cosmic sign at the centre of the universe that we are not unknown, we are not unloved, we are not not worth it. We are known and loved and worth it. And we can know that. We don't know everything, but we can know that because we can know him. And we can know that in his presence, Psalm 16, in his presence is fullness of joy. In his presence is fullness of joy. Unfortunately, the further you get from his presence, eventually you'll get emptiness of joy, which is no joy at all. He is the source of love, light and life. You turn your back on all those things, you get disconnection, darkness and death. So two things. As a church, we don't know all the facts, we don't have all the answers and it's arrogant to say that we do, but we do claim to know him. And because we know him, we do know other things. And you better know other things. You need to know the following. You do need to know this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on you. Because the Lord has anointed you to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent all of you to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Honestly, guys, if that isn't about us, then who has been sent to proclaim good news to the poor? Like, if you haven't been sent up to bind up the brokenhearted in Chesterfield, then who else is going? You can know, you can know, and you should know that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on you. Obviously, that's Isaiah 61. It prophesies the coming of Jesus. But in Romans 4, Paul says, he's talking about Abraham's faith and how Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul says, the words it was credited to him were not written only for him, but also for us. For us who believe in him who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. That's the bit that hooks us into the text. We are then hooked into the text. So you can know, and I really do want you to know, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. And imagine if you actually believe that. This blessing bingo chart will be a lot easier if you actually do believe the truth that you can know that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in you. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you can still know that that's true, but you just have to choose it, and God won't force it on you. Heaven is not a treat for a life well lived. Heaven's not centre parks. I'd like it to be, but it's not. And you know, whatever hell is, Whatever hell is, people in this church might have different opinions, but hell is described not as a flaming fire with little red demons with like tridents. Hell is described as outer darkness. You get to outer darkness by rejecting inner light, central light. Love, light and life is Jesus. You reject those things, eventually you'll end up at outer darkness. Universities will tell you whether you're in or out. You will tell Jesus whether you're in or out. Heaven's not a treat and hell's not a punishment. It's just a choice. It's a choice. Whatever hell is, it's a choice. And you don't have to worry about what God 
is going to do with you. Because you can just say yes to love, light and life. You can just say yes to freedom and mercy and justice and hope and peace. You can say that. You can just say it. <laughs> that would be great. Final story. This is just a, just a sign. Because I know like it, sound, it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds good if these things are true. I was in South Africa. I've never told this story before. I was in South Africa in 2014 doing some uh, comedy gigs, but I'd also did some gigs at churches. And uh, on one occasion, I was trying to, um, again, ask the Lord for things for the people in the congregation. And it was, um, it was uh, Life Church Bryanston in Johannesburg. And I wrote down loads of things. Like some of them like, were really weird, like the bicycle shining on my knees and, you know, Arsenal will never win the league again. I was trying, like, just stuff was, as I was praying, stuff was coming into my mind. I just wrote down whatever came to mind. But there was this one thing that, that stuck out as a bit weird. And I said to my friend Mark Palmer, who is still alive today, you can ask him about it if you want to. The people who witnessed this are still alive. I said to Mark, this is quite specific. I don't know how to do this. He said, well, you don't have to give the specifics, just give a, a general thing. And so at the end of this service, about 300 people there, it was an evening service, I said, if anyone has lost a child, I'd love to pray with you. And four people came up. The first three were all Caucasian girls, about the same age, and they all said, I've got a friend who's just had a, a, a miscarriage. I said, well, I'd love to pray with you. Of course I'd love to pray God's uh, hope and, and, and peace over those people because he knew those babies before he made them in their mother's room and they're with him now and that's, and that's good news. So I prayed for that, but they were all the same. And then there was this um, black Zulu lady who came up to me at the end and said, uh, my name's Josephine and um, I almost didn't come up because like, my son isn't dead, but you didn't say whose son is dead, you said who's lost a child. And I've lost a child, um, I've lost him to the world of drugs. And she looked at me, and she could see that I'd burst into tears. And I said, can I just show you what I've written down? And I got my pad, and what I'd written down, amongst the bicycle shining on my knees and Arsenal never win the league again, whatever it was, I'd written down, a black lady named Josephine has lost a child, and God will give her back a son. I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, Jesus? Look, I don't know how that happened. I don't know how it works. I don't know the facts. I don't know why I could hear something so specific and something so vague and nonsensical around it. But I know him. And I know he's good. And just the, a little lad from Newcastle under Lyme and this Zulu lady from Johannesburg had such a moment where God met us, came to find her in that moment to offer her hope and peace and encouragement. This is what we do know. We know him. We know that you can know him. He loves you fully, even as you are fully known. And he desires for you to know love and hope and joy and peace. He's not testing you. You do have a choice. And not choosing is a choice. So as Joshua 24 says, choose today. Whom you will serve. Choose today whom you will serve. Let me pray. Father, thank you that where every other religion says do, Jesus says done. Where every other religion says go and try, Jesus says come and rest. 
Jesus says, come to me. If you're weary, I'll give you a rest. If you're hungry, I'll give you something to eat. If you're thirsty, I'll give you something to drink. If you need a dad, well, that's me. If you need a family, I'll put you into one. Thank you, God, that Jesus comes and shows us what you're like. An unconditional love that doesn't force us into relationship, but offers us relationship. And we can know that you mean it because Jesus says we're worth dying for, and then he did it. And then he picked up, he picked up his life again. He overturned death so that death and all its minions could not beat us. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you, Father, for the gospel.